Very good. Well, you see the, the passage up on the screen, so you know what text we're, we're on. So we can all turn there. And um, Okay. Good deal. Hey, why don't we uh, pray one more time and just ask the Lord to bless our time together, okay? Let's pray. Father, Lord, we bow our hearts before you and we just think about even the words that we just sang about fathers and mothers and children sinking down into hell. And we're sobered and, and, and Father, we we're brought to the realization that life is very serious and eternity is very uh, long and um, uh, death and judgment is imminent and uh, somehow this world has a way of dulling that and of clouding our eternal perspective on things. And so we pray, O oh God, that you would, by your word and your spirit, as you minister to us, we pray that you would remind us, Lord, of the eternal perspective that you would want us to have. And uh, Father, we just, we ask that you would help us to set aside, Lord, the deeds of the flesh. Help us to put off the old man in all of his ways and help us to put on the new man that's being renewed in the image of Christ. Help us to put on his mind and his thinking and have the attitude that Christ had. And this is so true, Lord, for our subject matter today. Um, as... We continue to go through the doctrine and the practical theology of, of the family. Uh, we just pray that these passages of Scripture would really strengthen our church, and that's really our prayer. And Father, that's my prayer for us, that uh, as we talk about a biblical worldview of family and marriage and, and, and children and child-rearing and, and all of that, uh, Father, that, that would have a profound effect on our church, uh, that you would bring uh, marriages that are in our church that are uh, on the brink of just mediocrity or destruction even, um, that you would bring people uh, to a settled place, Lord, to, to, to see, Lord, the safety of, of, of applying these things, these truths to our lives and just being obedient to your word and, and to avert, Lord, whatever destruction uh, our sin may cause. And so, Father, we just pray that you would help us now and uh, give us the mind of Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are uh, turning uh, our attention now to verses 25 to 30. And, of course, this deals with what I titled here the domestic duties of husbands. And there are really, there's really one overarching principle to this whole passage, and that is that husbands are to be Christ-like. And there are different aspects of Christ-likeness that emerge uh, from this text. Uh, but let's read it again, just down to verse from 25 to 30. Let's just read, that, read our text today. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of, the water, uh, by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their wives, their own wives, as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. 
that's that's a profound uh, passage of scripture indeed. I mean, we can spend just weeks looking at this, uh, but we need to just consider some of the, the the aspects here that are dealing with being like Christ. And so I'm just going to point out some real basic things about what husbands are called to do. The first one, of course, is to love like Christ. And, um, and that's what husbands should want to be. You want to be like Christ. Uh, remember the old Nike commercials? I want to be like Mike. Right? We don't want to be like Mike, you know. I mean, you see uh, Michael Jordan's life lately? Wow. Oh. Uh, ravaged from a life of drinking and smoking and <coughs> gambling. And, uh, you know, he, he looks, I mean, last time I saw, I saw an interview with him, he looked awful. Just his eyes are bloodshot and just he looks worn. I guess when you spend night after night in the casino, that's what's going to happen to you, right? So we don't want to be like Mike. We want to be like Christ. Um, so the fundamental ethic here is love, of course. We could really even say that this entire exposition comes from that simple uh, imperative. Husbands, love your wives. Uh, everything comes from that, right? I mean, we know from Scripture that love is really the fulfillment of the law. Uh, we're told that love does no wrong. It does nothing wrong to a neighbor, for example, Romans thirteen ten. Um, and, and, and that love is ultimately the greatest Christian grace of all, according to 1 Corinthians 13, right? There's love and hope and peace, but he says of these, love is the greatest. So love is, is just that, that crucial aspect uh, of our Christian lives, and who should we love more than our own spouse, uh, husbands to the wife in this place? But um, I, I just want to turn here quickly to... Uh, 1 John. So turn with me to 1 John, because I think 1 John is one of those books that, probably more than any other book in the Bible, really just exposits what love looks like. Uh, we know the Apostle Paul, but 1 John chapter 3, we know the Apostle Paul, right? He expounded on what love is, what love does, what love is not, all of those things. But really, 1 John, the whole book is an exposition on what does it look like for you to walk in love, you know, towards one another. And of course, if this applies to one another, it applies especially to your spouse, uh, especially for husbands to their wives. Um, <coughs> it says here in 1 John 3.13, it says, Do not be surprised, brethren, the world hates you. We, do, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Now notice that right there, right? I mean, uh, that is, uh, you know, you ever counsel anybody or sit with a brother or a sister and you're trying to discern what's wrong with them spiritually? Uh, try to put your finger on this issue right here. What does the love of the brethren look like in your life? Right? Uh, is there a seclusion from the brethren? Is there an aversion to the brethren? Is there a pulling away from the brethren? Because here we're being told that, you know, um, the evidence that you have gone from death to life is this love ethic, that you love the brethren. And uh, understand that we all have different personalities. Understand that many of us are very shy right, and that we don't do good in big groups or whatever, but at the end of the day, if you don't have any love whatsoever in your heart for the brethren, um, then maybe that's evidence that you have not, in fact, passed from death to life. I mean, one of the things, you know, I preached the letter of 1 John many years ago, but uh, one of the things that, you know, was always amazing about John is that he's just so matter-of-fact. There's very little nuance in John, right? It's like, you don't love the brethren, 
you're still in death. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, you don't love the brethren, you're in darkness. I mean, there is no middle ground, there's no nuance, there's no 12-step program. It's just matter of fact, you know. Uh, if you don't love the brethren, and somewhere else he says, you're not of God. I mean, wow. You see what I'm saying? So for the Apostle John, what he's saying is that salvation, regeneration, has so transformed you from the inside out that it must it must have evidence like this in your life. So we have to. And he says, he who loves, uh, he who does not love abides in death. Everyone, listen to that language, right? It's so powerful, you guys. Uh, and of course, you know, for, for John, and the reason why he can talk like that is because, you know, think of the love that John was shown, right? Think of the example that, that John was shown uh, from Jesus himself of what it means to love right? And it's like, uh, it's like uh, Jonathan Edwards said. I, I found this quote by him. He says, how unsuitable it is for us who live by love, or excuse me, who live by kindness to be unkind, right? And what he's saying there is that who live by kindness, what he's saying is that it's only by the kindness of God that we live. <laughs> you know, it's only God's love and kindness towards us that we even exist. And how completely... Um, what a contradiction, right? What a deformity for us not to show the very thing that keeps us alive, which is the love of God, right? And, and, and what a contradiction it is when we don't manifest that in our own life. He says here, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Look at that language, right? And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. So how do we understand love, uh, right? So John is saying, if you want to understand the nature of love, then you have to look at the redemption of Christ. You have to look at the sacrificial death of Christ. That, that, that is the greatest display of love that anyone, anywhere, has ever seen at any time. And so we're, you know, when, when we're looking at the cross, we are looking at God's emblem of love, right? It doesn't get any deeper than that. Uh, and, and so really, uh, what does a godly marriage look like? Well, it's cross-centered, right? We, we have to always put the cross before us. I mean, that's what it's all about. And he says here, uh, he says that, and we ought to lay down our own lives for the brethren. And that's exactly what Paul is calling for in Ephesians chapter 5, when he says, husbands, love your own wives. So we obviously are called to, to love like Christ. And so then, like I said, the rest of this is really an exposition of that. What, is that, what does that love look like? So the first thing I'm going to say is that it is sacrificial, right? It is a sacrificial love, uh, sacrificial love. And I was going to say it's sacrifice like Christ, but you know what I mean. That's what love really is. It is a sacrificial love. It is, um, it's a love that puts a person's interests above themselves. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, just flip on over to the next book. Philippians chapter 2. Somebody want to read that for me? Um, anybody want to read that for me? Lift up your hand. Uh, Landon, you want to read verses 1 through 5? Sure. Yep. <coughs> if therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, 
If any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the, the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in out in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. I mean, if that's not the key to marriage, I don't know what is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to look out for the interest of your spouse. Uh, to look out for the interests of others. And, and, you know, what, what is a Christian marriage? I mean, Christian marriage is fundamentally fellowship, right? Because it's not like other marriages, right? We have not only, not only do we have a marital bond, but we also have a, a spiritual bond. You know, if we're blessed to have a uh, believing husband, a believing wife, I mean, so that the very first thing a Christian marriage is, it's a spiritual fellowship, a spiritual communion. And, uh, and, and this is the depths of it right here, where we empty ourselves of ourselves, where we prefer somebody higher than ourselves. I mean, how many of us, you know, could sit here and, and, and give examples of how in marriage, when we failed to do this, destruction ensued, <laughs> right? Whether on a, on a micro level or on a macro level, right? Whether on a, in a small little argument in the car or on a disastrous level, you know, in the home. But it all comes from selfishness. And that's why he calls it empty conceit, because it's vanity, right? It is foolish conceit. Um, We we have no right uh, as Christians to be full of ourselves, uh, to put ourselves first, to be selfish. Why? Well, because he says in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves. Really, I like the translation, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then verses 6 all the way down to verse 11 is an exposition of the selflessness of Christ, right? How he came as a servant, how he humbled himself and emptied himself. And that's really what marriage really should consist of, is servanthood. And um, let's go back to Ephesians 5. Therefore, he says, husbands, love your wives. And he says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the way that Christ loves the church is sacrificially, right? It is a laying down of yourself for your spouse. And uh, I tell you what, when you come into a marriage, this is what you're saying. When you come into that, that, that covenant bond with your spouse, what you are saying is that you are ready to lay down your rights. You are ready to forego whatever freedom you used to have. You have to be ready to let that go. You know, um, I'm getting ready to do a wedding here. What, next month? Where's Julio and Natalie? This should be in here. Where are they at? <laughs> May think maybe they're out there listening. But, um, but you know what I mean? It's just, it, it, you know, that's why I always try to, in marriage counseling, I always try to bring the gravity about what you're about to do in getting in this marriage covenant because marriage is for life. And uh, if you want to be biblical, Right? Marriage is for life. It's a covenant bond. I mean, one man, one woman for all of life. That's it. You know? And there's nothing that should come in between that bond. Because, I mean, as we're going to go on to learn, that's ultimately reflecting the relationship of Christ and the church. Christ and the church are in a covenant bond with one another. Right? And it's d- indissoluble. You cannot dissolve that bond. And in the same way, you should not dissolve the bond of marriage. 
uh, very important. And so we, we, we see that we are called to sacrifice the way that Christ does. So what are some practical ways then that we can live this out? Uh, maybe give some, maybe some examples in your own life. Uh, maybe no horror stories, but maybe some examples of you know, practical ways that you have to maybe forego certain things, sacrifice certain things for the sake of harmony and peace in the marriage, right? That's right. Keep the ice out of the marriage, right? <laughs> Go ahead. Amen. Amen. That's good. Preach it, brother. <laughs> yes, sir. That doesn't happen. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, the Bible says it's the, the Bible says it's the glory of a man to overlook a transgression. So I don't know. You might have to sometimes, you know, let her have the last slice or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It depends. It's one thing to be a flawed individual, sinful, flawed individual. It's another thing if there's a serious sin issue that needs to be addressed. You know what I mean? So I think the Lord will let you know that pretty quickly. Yeah. 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 That's right. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying ever tolerate sin. I'm saying, you know, understand that all of us are going to fail. We're all going to fail each other. We're all going to sin against each other. You know what I mean? And be, what does the Bible say? You know, just be be quick to forgive, really. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Yes, ma'am. Correct. That's a great way of putting it because that's the way we should resolve any issues in the marriage, right? We should do it for the sake of God's glory and not so that we can have our way. You know what I mean? So that's a good that's a good point. Yes, sir. Amen. Yes, sir. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right. That's right. Right, right. No Whataburger. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to gloss over this first one too, too quickly, you know, because it says, you know, love like Christ, which is exactly what we're being told to do. This isn't easy, you know what I mean? Um, this is not easy, and I've been in counseling situations where I'm literally telling the man, put your hand on your wife's shoulder or hold her hand, and he refuses. I'm saying that's how bad things can get when we don't do things God's way and we just let things fester and develop and and just grow. And the next thing you know, that root of bitterness has taken root. And man, sometimes, you know, and and, and sadly that that marriage ended in in divorce and no amount of counseling could have stopped it. And uh, it's very serious, very, very serious. I mean, these domestic codes, God gave these to us for a reason, you know, because we are capable of anything. And so we need to humble ourselves and, and do it God's way, you know, and not take the counsel of the wicked, right? Don't take the counsel of the ungodly. Uh, the way that we love is like Christ, not like the world, right? So a manifestation of the love of God towards your spouse is not just spend money on her, right? That's not just what it is, buy her expensive things, right? Um, it's deeper than that. It's much deeper than that. It's being emotionally and it's being spiritually invested in your wife. It's not just appeasing her materialistically or something like that. You know, that's shallow. You know, those things come and go, but virtue, virtue is the real key, you know, so and that's what God would have us to do. Um, yes, ma'am? Um, I'm going to try to say this without getting emotional. <laughs> um, it's okay. What, going back to the hold hands scripture, mm-hmm. that makes me Okay. Interests, your interests. Yeah. Like that's one of the ways that I feel loved by him because he sees like gift, spiritual gifting in me to minister to teenagers. Yeah. He did not ever a day in his life dream I would like to minister to teenagers someday. But as a result of the gift that he saw in me, he is now doing precisely that. Wow. He comes to conferences with like sixty screaming hyper teenage girls. God this bless you, I Russell. <laughs> but that's Man. The way he loves me. There's Russell right here, right here, Russell. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> hey yeah. And then just with that affirming your, my gifts. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's right. No, that's exactly right. Uh, let me say this, that, uh, you know, part of a husband's job is to make sure that his wife spiritually is flourishing, you know, um, and that you do whatever you can to make sure that your wife is flourishing spiritually, whatever that means. Uh, keeping her accountable to stay involved, you know, making sure she's not isolating herself, identifying her gifts and making sure that you're supporting her in her gifts because those things are important to her. And let's face it, guys. I mean, if you're a typical guy, this is not easy. Love like Christ. It's not easy. You know what I mean? Um, uh it hasn't been easy for me, I'll tell you that much. Um, I can very easily slip into selfishness. Uh, I, I, I'm not the most emotional guy in the world, you know what I mean? My wife is very emotional. Uh, you know, sometimes it's, you know I mean? She cries daily, you know what I mean? And I just sit, and I just look at that with the greatest of curiosity. And I just think, that's incredible. What does that feel like to have to cry every day? 
She's like, don't you ever cry? And I'm just like, trying to remember. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It, it doesn't come easily because we're not, we're not female. Uh, we're not women. We don't know. And so that's why Peter says, you know, dwell with your wives in an understanding way. So that means it's like as much as possible, you have to try to see it the way they see it. You know what I mean? Some of the things that I find to be just incredibly trivial, minute, and infinitesimal, you know, for Trish, it's a huge deal. You know what I'm saying? And to me, I'm just walking around the house like I'm trying to figure out a grammatical issue in the text, you know, and you're crying over, you know, the color of the baby shoe or something. I don't know. <laughs> she does that. I'm not trying to paint her as a trivial. Yeah. Trish is a very uh, deep a spiritual woman, very deep. And uh, she feels really deeply, you know what I mean? She is the most brutal Christian I know. I mean, she is, you know, just give me God or give me death. But, uh, <laughs> yes, sir? In that verse you referenced in Ephesians 3. Yep. Uh, is it two or three? Uh, I think it's, I thought it was, okay. Right. I was like, man, another passage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. But there is a, I mean, there's other consequences, but one of the examples, I mean, that's how God views it, is that if you only, you know, address her or deal with her clearly, that you're not dealing with her lustfully. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And it's so tricky, right? Like for ministry, I'll give you an example, right? For ministry, I think it was, Chris, you mentioned sometimes you have to sacrifice good things, right? And like ministry is a key example of that, you know what I mean? You may not be able to go preaching with the guys, you know what I mean? That's a good godly thing, right, to go evangelize. But for the sake of the, the ministry, which is your primary ministry in your home, but for the sake of that, you will have to forego that tonight, brother. And you will have to do the, 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 you know, you will have to do something more important for the night, which is to minister just to your wife. That's okay. You know, don't ever view that as like a step down, right? Uh, absolutely not. So we all get that, right? Because that's a huge deal, right? We should never, ever have this view where, oh, ministering to my wife, you know, that's kind of a, a step down from what I really want to do in ministry, Right? No, absolutely not. I mean, our husbands, our wives, our children, these are our first ministries. That's not intact. Forget everything else. You know what I mean? I mean, what does Paul say, right? First uh, Timothy chapter 3, he says, you know, a pastor has to manage his house well. In other words, if, if you look at the house and the house is in shambles, the family's in shambles, there's no order in the home. There's no love and respect. There's no submission. There's no leadership. There's no obedience of children. There's no proper parenting. You look at the house and that's going on in the home. There's chaos. There's dysfunction. How in the world would you want that person running the church? So it's a microcosm of the of the macrocosm of, of ministry, right? So, uh, and in one sense, our, our houses are like little churches, right? And you are the prophet priest of your home, brothers, and, and, and you are to minister the word of God to your family, right? And, and, and stand there and shepherd your home. Uh, and that's why, you know, when I'm preaching even about things, about what is it, what is it you know, what is it like to have to, you know, uh, be in ministry or pastoral ministry. All of you men should be listening very carefully, right, to, to that because there's a, there's a direct analogy to the way you lead your home, okay? So, and don't tune out. And then, ladies, you want to tune in as well because you want to know how to keep him accountable, right? So, 
Uh, that's very important. So we have to, there's a couple other things that we want to get to, though, is not just, you know, um, I'm going to change this just for pedagogical reasons, right? Not just sacrifice, uh, right, like Christ, but um, what's the next one? The next one, oh, yes, I know this one. Sanctify like Christ, right? Because look at what he goes on to say. He says, you know, he says, so that he says, he gave himself for her so that he might sanctify her. That's the purpose for his sacrificial death, right? Jesus died for the church in order to sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that he might present to himself the church in all of, his, all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. That's the whole purpose for sacrificial love in the, in the home. Um, and, and, and this is a big one. You know, sanctifying your wife is a big deal. We've got a couple of examples in the Bible of this, of, of, of what is an example of a man. Let me, let me start like this. What's an example in Scripture of a man that did not sanctify his wife? What was it? That's right. That's the example I had. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, because there we know that he was complicit and leading, really, uh, uh, extortion from the church. He was stealing from the church. And far from, I mean, that's a kind of an extreme example, right? That's the the reason why I had it, is because he he didn't guard his house. Apparently, he did not spiritually, he was not, he was not spiritually authentic in his home. The reason I say that is because you think Ananias and Sapphira, you think they would have gotten as close as they did to the position that they did by being uh, outwardly false? Oh, no. They fooled the apostles. This is how good they were at their hypocrisy. They had the apostles fooled. They had the early church fooled. So much so that they were entrusted with the money of the church. Right? Right? I mean, think about that. And in the midst of that, there was deception. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a sad, unfortunate example. And what did God do? He made an example of them and showed them that his desire for the church is holiness. And so he put them to death. And the news of that spread all over the early church, right, all over the, all over the region. The news of that spread, and people were gripped with fear, <laughs> right, that God would still... God can still do that. And uh, who knows how many Ananias and Sapphira's God has had to take out for his glory, to protect the glory of his church. I don't know. I'm not going to say anything, but um, not that I know anybody for sure <laughs> in particular, but all I'm saying is that don't mess with God mm-hmm. and don't mess with his church and honor the money in the church. You know, So, I mean, that's a, an example. What's an example of a good uh, what's a good example of a husband that sanctified his wife? Think of anything else? Let, let's stay in Acts. Stay in Acts. Not Ananias and Sapphira. Any other examples come to mind? This is a good one. Priscilla and Aquila. That's right. That's the, that's the one that I had. Acts chapter 18. Matter of fact, let's go there real quick. Turn to Acts chapter 18 because what you find is that Priscilla and Aquila are, they're amazing people, right? I don't know how much you've ever studied about them. But in Acts chapter 18, um, they have an amazing, st- I think they have an amazing story. I think it would be a great study 
And the way that you would want to do this is you would want to take like a Bible dictionary or a Bible encyclopedia, and they would give you all the relevant passages on Priscilla and Aquila, and you'd want to go and trace all of that down and then read some commentary on those passages, those passages just to kind of fill in what happened in, in their lives. But what I'm suggesting is that this is an exemplary couple. This is an exemplary uh, example. I think Aquila was a godly man. I think he sanctified his, his wife, Priscilla, um, in an honorable way. And I think there's a lot of evidence for that. A lot of evidence for that. It begins in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. This is where Paul encounters them. Remember, he says here, After these things, he left Athens and he went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded that all Jews should leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, tent making, he stayed with them, and they were working by trade. They were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Well, the next time you're going to find them uh, being mentioned again is in verse 18. Look at verse 18. It says, apparently at this stage or at this point, um, apparently they had, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, they had come to Christ. It says in verse 18, Paul, having remained many days, took leave of the brethren, and he put out, and he, and he put out to sea for Syria. And with, boy, Syria, imagine... Imagine that today. Uh, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. Now, this is what's interesting, is that um, in the ancient world, for you to mention the wife first is interesting. And as a matter of fact, I think except for maybe one passage in the whole Bible where they're mentioned, the order is reversed, but it's mainly Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, and, and commentators mention that, that that's interesting that she's mentioned first every time. Every time it's her first. And so what some would suggest is that probably uh, she was more um, theologically astute than he was. Uh, maybe he, she was more, she, had, she just had a, a more prominent personality. Maybe she was, you know, maybe she was more gifted than he was. Um, and certainly I've seen that. Uh, I've seen that uh, on several occasions in the church where it is the wife that is extremely zealous for, let's say, theology and doctrine and ministry. And not that there's anything wrong with the guy, but she is just extraordinarily gifted by God, and we should celebrate that, right? That's a good thing. We should not be, uh, you know, we shouldn't be uh, objecting to that. That's a, great, that's a great thing. And so she's mentioned first repeatedly. And then what happens is is that, um, he leaves them in Ephesus. Uh, he says here in verse uh, 18 going on, in Centuria he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. He remember he made a Nazarite vow. They came to Ephesus and left them there. Uh, now he himself entered the synagogue and was reasoning with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he, he did not consent, but taking leave of them, so apparently he just he left them there, taking leave of them, he says, uh, I will return to you again if God wills. He sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed in, Ce in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Man, Paul's on the move, huh? This is all by, sh this is all by uh, ship and, you know, uh, by foot and traveling. And this region of the world is not flatland. I mean, this is a lot of this area is mountain, 
mountain, you know, and very uh, treacherous terrain. Uh, it's very interesting. But anyway, then he says, and having spent some time there, he left and passed successfully uh, through the Galatian region to Phrygia. Galatian region was very perilous. There's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of thieves. Uh, caravans would get raided and things like that. He came and, and Phrygia, and he's strengthening all the disciples. Now, here it is. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. Okay, so this guy knew the word of God. And this, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things of Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So in other words, he didn't understand the new covenant baptism. He only understood John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance, preparing Israel to receive their Messiah. But it wasn't the fullness of new covenant baptism, okay? It says, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, see the order again, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they, both of them, took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And so right there, you, you, you see that whoever Priscilla was, she was so um, astute that she could even contribute. I mean, we don't understand the nature of the dynamic of the conversation, how much she contributed, but it says that she was part of it. So she was able, with her husband, to instruct Apollos the way more accurately. And uh, I think many of the women in our church can do that. I mean, how many of you been, ladies have been out, you don't have to show your hand, but, you know, been out witnessing and you hear somebody talking about the gospel or, or, or maybe they're trying to refute one of our open-air preachers or something like that. They, they claim to be Christian, right? But, you know, they're of the Joel Osteen stripe, you know, and they just need the way, and they're not even eloquent, so they need the way more accurately, right? And how many of you ladies have ever pulled somebody aside and showed them the way more accurately? I know that a lot of you have. And so, this shows to me that Aquila, whatever he was doing, he, he had such a connection with his wife that he, he discipled his wife at least, and he was concerned about the theology of his wife, that she was able to uh, contribute to meaningful ministry. And I say meaningful ministry because there's a lot of this. Let me give you some examples, okay? What I'm saying is that if you look at the virtues of Priscilla and Aquila, this, this, this couple, this married couple, what you find from the biblical evidence in the New Testament, we don't have time to go through all of it, but let me just, let me just uh, illustrate a few points here. Number one, they were trustworthy. Why? Because the Apostle Paul, who had very high standards, remember? Acts chapter uh, 15, uh, he had such high standards that with John Mark, he was not willing to take him because John Mark was... He wasn't really faithful the way that Paul saw it. He kind of fell short. He wasn't really faithful to the ministry. And so Paul was unwilling to take him along on a missionary journey. Well, these people were apparently so faithful that Paul not only took them around, took them along with him, but entrusted them to stay, you know, uh, in Ephesus and to continue ministering. Um, I would say they're also faithful because they served with Paul on many missionary journeys. journeys. For example... In different uh, passages of Scripture, like Romans chapter 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, in both of those books, uh, Priscilla and Aquila are found, and Paul calls them his fellow workers. Matter of fact, if you look at Ro uh, Romans 16, verses 3 to 4, there we are told that Priscilla and Aquila eventually, I guess, they went from Ephesus 
right? So if you have like, oh boy, I'm going to botch this. I don't even know how. But if you just look at your map, right? If you have like the Roman world and, you know, Ephesus is over here somewhere, right? And um, Rome is over here somewhere, right? Eventually, and then where's Corinth? I think Corinth, I want to say Corinth is going to be over here somewhere. So for somehow they went from, from, F, from the Ephesian region down to Rome. And then if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 16, then you find them in, in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians. Um, so they travel, and this is all, this is not close. I mean, <laughs> when you don't have a car or, or, or an airplane, okay, I mean, this is, these are long missionary journeys that they went on. And guess what they're doing at these locations? They had a church, apparently, according to every scholar in the book of Acts, in Ephesus, and that's what we're looking at here, Acts 18. And then when you look at Romans chapter 16, verses 3 to 4, they have a church in Rome in their house. And then they have a church in Corinth in their house. Wow! These, who are these people? This is like a, you know, this is like a superstar couple here. Every time you look into their lives, they're ministering. Every time you look into their lives, they're hosting churches in their house. I mean, spectacular ministry, right? And all I'm saying is that this is, what, this is what's possible when a husband and wife are functioning properly. When a husband is sanctifying his wife and making sure that she is going to be knowledgeable and zealous and faithful. Deacons' wives, we're told in 1 Peter chapter 3, that deacons' wives have to be faithful in all things. Uh, in other words, they, they, they need to be trustworthy. They need to be, they need to be the type of women that are not busybodies. They're not going around the church. They're not causing trouble. You can entrust them with things, right? Um, it's a very high calling. That's why it says that a deacon has a high standing in the faith. Uh, because call, he's called to a high standard. Um, they were knowledgeable because we saw the way that they, they educated Apollos. Um, I would say they were also humble uh, because Aquila, again, may have given some prominence to his wife, right, and allowed her, right? Um, and I've seen that. I've seen, again, I've seen that. I love, you know, I love when, when God does that, when, when in the home uh, the wife is the more theologically zealous one. Not that there's anything wrong with him, okay? It's not that he's in sin or anything like that. But sometimes some women are extraordinarily gifted theologically. You know, I just heard a podcast um, with the Reform Forum guys, and they were talking to they were talking to a, a, a woman scholar of some of some I can't remember, and she was just talking about and she was older now, but she was just talking about how her and her husband just traveled all over the nation, ministering and teaching and writing and just just amazing. So, any questions about that? Anything? On any of that. Okay, so how do we do this? Go back to Ephesians chapter 5 as we're almost out of time here. How, how, how does the husband do this? Priscilla, by all accounts, was a fruitful, productive, zealous, faithful woman of God and knowledgeable, right? So how do we do this? It's very simple. Brothers, your one weapon is the word, right? It says... He cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so somehow you need to be teaching your wife the word. There needs to be a uh, systematic, there needs to be a regular 
habitual, routine way that you are exposing your wife to the Word of God, that you are washing your wife with the water of the Word. And hopefully it's more than just reading your chapter for the night, right? Hopefully it's that you're teaching your wife sound doctrine, that you're expecting her to engage in the sermons uh, at church, to be part of the Sunday school lessons at church, that she's engaged theologically in the Word, that you monitor her is my wife a woman of the word? If not, why not? What's going on, right? Because she should crave the word, long for the word, and be in the word. And uh, for a husband, that's your duty. Your duty is to make sure that she has that, that, that zeal for God's word. Uh, that's what's going to change your life. That's what's going to mature her in the faith. And um, like it says here, Christ does this to his bride so that he might present her uh, to himself, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory. Now, what's that talking about there, that presentation? Present her to himself. Where? When? What is that talking about? Anyone? Anyone? Well, in verse 27, it says he will present to himself that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory. Yes, sir? The consummation at the end, right? So the final judgment, right? In eternity, there's going to be some, some final, right? And we know this from Revelation, right? In New Jerusalem, the bride of Christ will be revealed in all of its glory, right? In the same way, husbands are called, therefore, to be eschatologically minded, to be eternally minded with their spouse to know that eternity matters, and that's why I have to disciple my wife and make sure my wife is being discipled. What's part of discipleship? Is it all positive? It's all positive. What's the negative aspect of that? What would be like, well, correction, but, and I'm thinking even maybe negative is not the right word, but also what I'm thinking more of is like protecting. You know what I mean? Guarding. Guarding your, like, just like Christ. He, 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 he does correct, so... Absolutely, because your wife is your sister in Christ, right? We need to be willing to confront, to exhort, to rebuke, to correct, just like we would expect her to do the same to us, you know, especially when there's sin or something like that. But, but also protection. What's that? Oh, I was telling you about that, right? I did share that in here, right? Yeah, we had a friend who, she became Eastern Orthodox, and she was a good friend of my wife's. And she wanted to maintain that friendship. And, you know, I wasn't having it, you know, <laughs> because she was a very smart girl, very smart. Uh, she knew the word, and, and she was very educated. She had a degree in the Bible. I mean, she wasn't, a, she wasn't dumb. I mean, she understood, you know, she, she, she was conversant in the arguments and all of that. And I just, you know, I just wasn't um, at peace with letting my wife continue a, a relationship with her on that level. You know, I just told her, look, no, until she repents. I mean, this is apostasy. She rejects the doctrine of justification by faith alone. I mean, that's the gospel in my book. You know, anybody, anything, anyone? You want to define what you mean by negative? Mm-hmm. Well, what I, what I was saying is that it's not just positively instructing, but it's also guarding, okay. protecting. Okay. You know what I mean? That's, that's what I was saying. And, uh, and, but even correcting, like Robert was saying, you know, if we love each other, right, we will correct each other. We'll confront each other lovingly. I mean, because that's what we're called to do. That's what Christ does to the church. Christ confronts the church. He, he's not afraid to correct 
to discipline the church. You know what I mean? And so, uh, l okay, last thing, because we're out of time, but he also says here in verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as also Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So what's he saying here? What he's saying here is that there is an aspect of the husband's duty that he is to nourish and cherish his wife, right? And let's be honest, guys. I mean, we cherish something that we love, you know? And, and we nourish something because we think it's important to keep it alive, right? To keep it maintained. And, and that, that's what we do to our own bodies. Uh, we, we are so meticulously concerned for our bodies, right? Mm -hmm. How many of you guys eat organic stuff? Why do you eat organic stuff? Because <laughs> you don't want the GMOs, huh, or whatever, right? <laughs> but you know what I mean. We're all, to some degree, concerned about our health, right? We all are concerned about our skin. <laughs> I mean, haven't you ever found something on your body? You're like, man, what is that? That wasn't there before, right? We're concerned about it. What is that? Right? Because we care about ourselves, our flesh, our body. Yeah. I think too it's it's for sure because the human race, the human mind is so structured human structural that it is concerned about our own bodies. And even if you said we keep the church in shape, that you would really have a choice yeah. because you're American yeah. of that unity. Yeah. Yeah, amen. And unity and this is part of leadership, right? Because let's be honest, I mean to me, the biggest challenge in, in, in the church in terms of family and marriage, if I were to just to be honest, based on what I've seen as a pastor for the last 10 years and even before that in ministry for many more years, uh, the biggest challenge is really not so much women failing to submit to their husbands. Honestly, it's husbands failing to lead their wives. That, that is the honest appraisal, and that you'll find that comment over and over because it's true. Um, because of for whatever reason, you know what I mean? Men, naturally, because of our sin nature, we naturally want to abdicate. We naturally want to let our guard down. We naturally want to be lazy spiritually. We just kind of want to veg out and not, you know, be who we're supposed to be, you know? And that's not good. That's not good at all, you know? And, uh, and then it has ramifications, as we'll see when we get to the, the section here on child rearing, you know, it has effects on the entire family. It's not just the marriage, but it will affect the entire home. And so nothing will strengthen our church more, but then we have spiritual men, godly men who fear God and lead their homes biblically and properly. And that's it. You know what I mean? That's it. <laughs> that's right. Let's, that's a wrap. So let's, let's, go to let's go to worship. <laughs>